Welcome and thank you for joining us. The pastors on this show all serve at Trinity Reformed Church, an evangelical church here in Bloomington, Indiana. We are unapologetically, unequivocally evangelical. And yet, we've found that we're a bit of a culture shock for many evangelicals visiting us for the first time. I asked our pastors why, and that led to a discussion about repentance and grace and what it means to be a boringly normal Christian. Our conversation today is with Tim Bailey, Max Carell, and Jody Killingsworth. My name is Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds podcast. Last podcast episode, we talked about a man who came to our church, who's now one of our pastors. He said, after hearing the sermon, I'm never coming back. He came from evangelicalism. He's here now. He's, he's, he's with us. He, he hung around. Most of the time, people coming from evangelicalism hit us, and just, it's like, whoa, I'm now here, and it's something completely different. And so, what do you think is the thing that's most different when they walk in the door? I do know that one of the things that we've had people very intensely opposed to is our prayer of confession. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of as one example and probably an expression of a commitment, core commitment that I believe is held by us, practiced by us, and is, is finds its expression throughout the service, certainly throughout the preaching ministry of the church, which is that we call people to repent of their sins mm-hmm. that we put we work to put specificity to that mm-hmm. <laughs> to talk about this is immediately to open yourself up to the accusation that you don't believe in grace so let me just say we believe in grace we celebrate grace grace is what we hope in it's it's at the basis of our confidence before god we believe in experiencing, knowing the grace of God. Grace is precisely what gives us the confidence to name the sin. That's right. Mm-hmm. The law of God is what they're hitting. That's what the article says. What people are hitting when they come into our church is a commitment to using the law, unleashing mm-hmm. the law of God, the holy character of God, which is expressed for us in his law, Mm -hmm. revealed to us in his law, to bring us to a place where the grace of God means anything to us. To to expose in our hearts what what grace presents to us really as a solution, as a help, as a comfort, uh, as forgiveness. It is taken for granted. Um, I I believe in the last episode you were talking about navigators, the navigator movement. I've known some folks who became Christians in the navigator movement, and I think that's just a a placeholder for a common approach to the Christian life, Mm -hmm. which is to um, have a, a, a time in your early life or in college where you see your need repent, come to Jesus, trust, invite him into your heart and, mm-hmm. and believe the gospel. And then to live the rest of your life without consciousness of sin, to think about sin, to talk about sin is to 
run the risk at best, at least, of walking away from the grace of God. There's a wonderful quote in Ian Murray's book, Revival and Revivalism, by one of the faithful pastors in New England who was critical of certain aspects of the Second Great Awakening, Mm -hmm. where he says that it was common, one of the common characteristics of false converts, people who have a false hope, is that any time they feel they they've come they they believe now because they've heard the gospel presented to them they feel this is somebody with a false hope they feel like they have been reconciled to god and they walk in that assurance and that that hope but mm-hmm. as soon as some sense that maybe god's displeased with them reenters the picture hmm. their hope is gone hmm. that's interesting and he said that is a that is a feature a fact of of a false an evidence of a false hope a false convert. So you you're basically talking about a, the type of convert who feels like he has to walk on eggshells, and the minute you mention he has to cling fiercely, uh-huh. exclusively to grace as a mantra. He cannot allow God's law mm-hmm. or the terror of God to enter his thinking. Mm-hmm. He has no true fear of God. He has a false hope mm-hmm. based on some certain presentation of the gospel that he's heard but he has no room in his heart for the law of god Mm. and what david says is how i love your law yeah that's a sign of a true convert he has learned to take god's side against himself Mm. yeah (laughs) and to do so even expecting condemnation He presses this point so hard. It's why it's a wonderful quote Mm. in the book. But this pastor says, he does this, he cordially agrees with God, takes God's side against himself, even Mm. while expecting condemnation. Mm. He's so pleased with the character of God that though it slay him, though though it condemn him to hell, it is so just and right and good, the thing that is violated by his sin. Hmm. That that got the the pastor says that's a converted hmm. person who has a true hope of God. It makes me think of uh, I think the Puritans talked about the grace of the law, mm-hmm. and of course uh, Tim's book, The Grace of Shame. You can't be a Christian without seeing the grace in God showing your sin. One of the things we talk about here at this church is that as as pastors, we have the privilege of introducing people to themselves. And you can't do that without the law. You just can't do that. It's never been attempted by any faithful movement in the past. And this is an, uh, Ian Murray has been helpful in, 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 in helping me understand this historically. There's a book that he wrote called The Old Evangelicalism. This is one of the great points of the book is that the gospel always has the law. Mm. The great revivals have always been... Um, rediscoveries of the presentation of the law as useful to humbling men and calling them, putting them in a right frame of mind and heart to receive the love of God in Christ. And I think the mistake of the navigators and what they, and the kind of people that they stand for church is that that's useful one time. Mm. Mm -hmm. And our prayer of confession demonstrates that actually we need that regularly, that the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. Which is the first of the 95 theses. I mean, 
You know, that's what Martin Luther said when our Lord Jesus said you must repent. He was teaching us that the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. We said that last time, but honestly, Jody, that's just what's absent yeah. from Reformed evangelical churches. And it's not just that it's missing. It's resisted. It's absolutely resisted. We had a guy come to our church, you know, out of Taylor University, been in the Air Force. He was a man who, oh, he just loved our church when he came to our church. But then he wrote me a letter, and he was very unhappy that we had a prayer of confession. And as he saw it, a prayer of confession violated the doctrine of grace because it asked for something that God had already given us, which was forgiveness. And he didn't say it, but I always felt like that mantra repeated by especially dispensational evangelicals, which were seated in the heavenlies. Mm. And it's like anything that calls into question that you and I are seated in the heavenlies, you know, is an assault upon the doctrine of grace. Mm-hmm. And so what I've noticed over my lifetime is, first of all, that you know I was in the Presbyterian Church of America for over 20 years, and I sat in Presbyterian meetings, listened to the preaching that came out of there, and of course, Brian Chapel and other guys there, they just had these books on preaching God's grace. And what I noticed was there was never any known, any of the sermons, none. Mm-hmm. It was just always God loves you and has a a wonderful plan for your life and God so loved the world and and it's grace by grace that you're saved it's by grace that you're sanctified and everything is grace and it always rang completely hollow to me because I did not see in the people who would talk about it all the time the depth of mercy can there be can there be mercy for me can I you know, I never saw from the people that would talk about grace all the time the kind of depth of recognition of who they were and who their wives were and who their children were and who their dad and mom were and who I was. It just seemed to be so empty. And then one time we had a guy who confessed a, a horrible sin. Horrible, horrible, horrible. I won't go into the details. After a few months, the elders told him he was to go in front of the congregation and confess to the congregation. And we had had to already tell the congregation the details because of the way everything happened and it was necessary. We were. Uh, We put ourselves as a church, our elders, under the authority of Blue Ribbon Committee of Pastors and Elders from outside of our community so that uh, it was such a heavy thing. We wanted to be accountable to men Mm. outside of our community that we trusted. But the time came for him himself to confess, not all the details, but the details. One of the things you guys did with him was you you made him rewrite something in that confession. I remember that as moderator of the session. And he got up and he very simply said what his sin was. Now, mind you, it had to be done that way. We were under authority. I'm not going to go into the details. And he was sobbing. 
in a manly way. All right. And then one by one, the people of the church came up, some of them who had been the victims of the very sin that he had confessed to. Not his victims, although. And they came up and they hugged him and they said, I forgive you. And as I was standing there watching this, I thought to myself, this is what's missing mm. from evangelical and Reformed and Presbyterian and Baptist churches. They talk endlessly about grace, but I have never in my life seen and felt grace like I felt at that moment. It was just mind-boggling, the grace of God that was poured over mm -hmm. that congregation. Mm -hmm. Were all of you there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because that that's a great example. But if you think about it, how how we think about this in evangelicalism is, well, that's the day that I took a shower. I took a shower 30 years ago, and ever since I took a shower, I've been clean. And shower is the placeholder for and, repent. Yeah, shower is where I repented, and shower is where I received mercy from God, except that we've needed a shower every day. Mm. Every since moment. that day, every moment since that time. And so we talk all the time about showers. Mm -hmm. But we're never availing ourselves of them because we won't even acknowledge the filth on us that needs to be removed. Right now. Right now. I don't know how many Gospels it's recorded in, maybe just John, when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And I think that's instructive of what we are and are not saying. As we talk about the necessity of preaching God's laws, we talk about the necessity of cleansing daily cleansing where peter where jesus says where peter rebukes him don't don't wash my feet and he said if i don't wash your feet you have no <laughs> part of me and he says well then wash all of me yeah, he's like listen yeah. peter you're already clean yeah you're already clean. <laughs> you only need yeah. your feet washed mm. <laughs> that's a rough paraphrase but i think what jesus is teaching us is both the both and mm. justification does wash us and we are clean before god wow that's the hope. That's that's the hope of grace in a, in the sense of justification. And yet we live on in the body. We are weak. We commit sins. And we need to be continually washed. Not in that total essence sense. That's of justification. Mm -hmm. Once for all. And and we can live in, in the assurance that Christ is fully sufficient. We bring nothing to the table. He provides everything for us. Mm -hmm. We don't need to be perpetually justified. But Christ has d accomplished that once for all on the cross. Mm -hmm. And yet we must be, all God's faithful servants through history have said, and Scripture makes it clear, we must be daily cleansed. We must live lives of repentance. I've been looking here on my phone. I can't find a good example of a concluding prayer of Calvin at the oh, end of his my sermons. <laughs> but they almost all uh, uh, focus on an appeal to God now, on behalf Father, of his Father, we bow down before you and we admit that we're inside of us is no good thing and we are without hope. And Father, you have added to our knowledge of our sin this morning as we have Or please help us to study and know our sins yeah, more. Absolutely. Almost every prayer has that in yes. it. Really. It's like yeah. one of it's in the first paragraph almost always. But it's really strange that the people who would say, no, no, we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. Or they'll ignore doing it. 
yet they are completely willing to pray the Lord's Prayer. And I've, I don't know when it happened, maybe a couple of years ago when I noticed it, it struck me, praying the Lord's Prayer, that in the context of the Lord's Prayer, you have the request for our daily bread. And so it, it reveals to you the frequency with which the prayer can be prayed or should be prayed. Well, mm-hmm. how often do you need daily bread? Hmm. Well, daily. <laughs> and so the next day, the next thing that's said is, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And it's just assumed in the prayer that you are going to be presenting to God mm-hmm. every day your need for his forgiveness mm-hmm. and the reality that you're going to have to in turn forgive other people for what they do. Yeah, this is something that... Uh this is something really hurts me. Well, I'm saying that because we've just gotten done saying that we shouldn't go around talking about our pain, but I can't tell you how hurtful it is to know how evangelicals condemn any preaching of the word that convicts people of sin. And I mean, you asked at the beginning, what is it that people reject when they come to our church who grew up in evangelicalism or in the PCA? What they reject is they reject the fear of God. That's what they reject. Because their entire religion is based upon cheap grace that doesn't ever fear God and doesn't tremble at his word. I think the most scandalous thing to them is that the word of God is preached in such a way that it makes them tremble. Hmm. I honestly do. I have been saying for 30 years, the most scandalous thing a pastor can do is preach to his congregation as if they are the ones, not your mother, more your brother, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And so you call into question that there are people in your church who actually have tested themselves and found they are not in the faith. If you know anything, you know I'm quoting Paul, the Apostle Paul. And you just took that for granted in what you said, Jody, you know? where you know you're talking about the whole issue of false conversion. Mm. And honestly, I would say 20th century evangelicalism didn't believe in false conversion. How could there be? Yeah. Because the minute somebody prayed the sinner's prayer, you then gave them the full promise of God that nothing they did could ever take them from God's hand. And if you didn't do that, you were at the least committing psychological mm. abuse. Mm-hmm. And most likely spiritual abuse too, because their birthright is to be seated in the heavenlies the minute they say the sinner's prayer. And what I see it as is just this huge scheme to deny the work of the Holy Spirit's necessity in the work of conversion. Mm. And so it's all up to us. And so we say the right thing. You know, it's just like Tetzel in the Middle Ages, you know, the minute the minute my bon mot my- drops in. My prayer to receive Jesus yeah, drops into square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the other things that we say around here is that we want to be boringly normal, right? We want to be boringly normal. I actually use that phrase in the newcomers class when I teach, and what I say is, I would like to be the kind of Christian, taking language and culture and things like that into consideration, that would be recognizable by a Christian from the 1600s the late 1500s, from the Reformation on? Well, okay. So let's admit, 
at least the four of us sitting at this table, let's admit that very few people would come into our church and hear any teaching on male and female, on sexuality as opposed to gender, which is plastic and malleable, without thinking that we're twisted, that we're unusual, that we're abnormal, that we're outliers, all those words. Backward. Backward. Well, to use Lucas' word, recognizable. He said, I'd like to be recognizable by the people in history. Yeah. And I think that anyone who comes in, it doesn't matter the time or the place or who they are, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian, there's something recognizable. There's something that gets identified by people. In other words, when that man came all those years ago and said, I'm not coming back because you don't preach the word, something was recognizable to him. And at first it was recognizable and he rejected it. Mm. And later, because God's spirit worked in his heart, it was still recognizable, but he embraced it. Yeah, I'm having trouble with your word recognizable. Yeah, you switched. switched. Well, Lucas used that word when he was talking about, he he said, I would wish that I would. Yeah, but I don't think these people coming in our church recognize it as being historic Christianity. but, But that's my point. My point is that they recognize it as something other and, I believe, authentic. They don't like it or they like it. And I think that's the thing that's recognizable. I think that God, I think God sets it up so that his people all through history always have this smell about them that everybody can smell. And it's yeah, and, but it's the smell of death to evangelicals when they come to our church. I, it stinks I'm, to high heaven. To them. I'm not disagreeing with you. So what that's are you a, saying? I'm saying all I was saying is that the point is that Lucas point about being recognized i think is a reality here hmm. and it's a reality very broadly not just with people who are from outside but it is exactly the in the inoculated uh evangelicals that come into the service who have never ever heard god's law or never had had an understanding that it had relevance to them today and they come in and they hate it they hate it being applied to them. They hate being shown what they get shown because it exposes them. And it's not just the one. It's not like we have we have a uh, uh, a scapegoat in the service every week that everyone knows is the everyone knows is the baddie. So, David, I want to tell a little sort of story revelation to me that is is very, very precious to me, all right? And that is, I was reading a volume of Luther's works, and I came across a little, uh, well, it's, it's not real short, but a short thing called um, Instructions to Parish Visitors. So if you can imagine at the time of the Reformation, instead of having bishops and everything, all of a sudden they're outside of the Roman Catholic Church and there needs to be supervision and accountability for pastors in congregations. And so Calvin had his company of pastors and they got together and they disciplined each other and confessed their sins to each other. And the Lutherans had what were called parish visitors. And so this is a short uh, instruction to the parish visitors about 
as you go out, this is what you're to look for. This is what you're to do. This is what the questions you're to ask. These are the emphases that you're supposed to have. Now, I've read about this sense that it wasn't that Luther wrote this whole thing, but it was that it was written in his context and had his approval specifically. So it's in his works, all right? Instructions for parish visitors. And I read that thing, and I remember having Luther. Now, (laughs) I don't know how many people listening actually know Luther, but if you've ever read anything by Luther, it's probable that what you've read is his commentary on Galatians, although you have to understand that probably the one that's most common out there now is Baudelarized. It's had a lot of the good content removed from it. And if you want to know where to find the good commentary, go on baileyblog.com or whatever it is and search for Luther's commentary on Galatians, and you'll find what is the right... I'll I'll put something in the notes. Okay, all right. But anyhow, so Luther is the champion of grace, Mm. okay? That's what he is. And if you read his commentary on Galatians, he's constantly calling for us to not live in fear but to live in grace, all right? Mm -hmm. And then in the middle of it, in these instructions to parish visitors, what they say is, uh, make sure that this pastor of the local parish is preaching God's law. Hmm. And it shocked me. You know, I'm thinking, whoa, wow, yeah. Because I had done that once when I was a new pastor, and it had shaken me to the core. (laughs) I just thought, well, it would be good to preach a series on the Ten Commandments. And then it's like everybody's holding on with their fingernails. Wow. Because it turns out God is holy. Mm. And we came under conviction of sin. So I'm seeing this. Preach God's law. Have them preach the Ten Commandments. And this is Luther. And then he says, he says, it's the habit today for people to preach on faith and not to preach repentance, for people to preach forgiveness and for them not to preach holiness. And I'm thinking, whoa. Luther said that. This is Luther, wow. yeah. In a manual to instruct yes, people how to preach. this is for supervisors of pastors. This is what they're told to go out and to say to pastors. Yes, you pastors always want to talk about grace. You always want to talk about forgiveness. You never want to talk about the holiness of God. You never want to talk about the, the law of God. And you never, you want to talk all about forgiveness and nothing about repentance. This is what Luther says, all right? And then he says that if we do that, it's like our master said, uh, we will be much worse off after that than we ever were before. So he's making reference to the one demon and the seven demons mm-hmm. that come back. And and he says, um, that's a very real danger that by our preaching, people will be worse off than they were before they ever heard us. And he says, if we preach the grace of God, and faith without preaching repentance. He said, our people will become without compunction of conscience. Mm -hmm. Direct quote. Without compunction of conscience. And then he adds this, and he says, and this will be an error worse than all those hitherto prevailing. Well, 
I'm a history major at UW-Madison, studied Reformation history. And it's clear to me what he's saying is, if we are cheap grace men and faith men and refuse to preach the law of God in repentance, we will do worse damage to the people in our Reformation churches than the Roman Catholic Church ever did. And I will testify to you that generally over my lifetime of preaching, I have felt that there's much more hope for Roman Catholics and for liberals coming into our church and homosexuals than there is for evangelicals. My perception of people out of Wheaton and all its parachurch movements, my perception is that they are without compunction of conscience, that their preachers have made them that way. And so I always feel that although people come into our church from evangelical, you know, parachurch ministries, colleges, seminaries, whatever, I have always felt that what happens with them if they stay is that they are born again by the Spirit of God. Mm -hmm. That it is actually evangelism. Because the work is harder than it is just getting a normal run-of-the-mill liberal from the humanities at IU. Thanks for listening. My name is Lucas Weeks, and our conversation today was with Tim Bailey, Max Carell, and Jody Killingsworth. We serve as pastors at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. For more great content, please visit warhornmedia.com. To support this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash out of our minds. Cheers. Cheers.